0: Talking Theatre, with Sir Hall with felix Stoet-Smooth, the
1: only podcast on Earth about the theatre. It is said that there are three responses to a piece of design. Yes, no, and wow. I'm not sure who said it. The Yahoo quote finder didn't specify, and I wasn't going to waste my time on research but there is a great deal of truth to it. From the child's delicate fingering of a rainbow up to the blueprint plans of repurposing the Millennium Dome into a car park, designing is the imagination centre of nearly every artistic endeavour, and in the theatre it is vitally important. That is unless you're Jefferson Fitzjingle. In which case, your distinct lack of imagination is your defining feature as a designer, and everybody should be perplexed by it not only what you charge, but by your audacity at the set, costume, and props you produce. They, and you, really are a fucking state, and you should be thoroughly ashamed. But more on that, and him, later. Good day. My name is Saho with Felix to Smooth, and apart from being your host for this podcast, Talking Theatre, the only podcast on Earth about the Theatre, today, reader, this is my birthday. birthday, birthday oh, thank you, that's very really kind. Oh, here comes another one. Oh, that's Oh, that's a cow. Yes, to die, 84 years ago, Holworth was born. In fact, in about 20 minutes' time, it will mark the exact moment I was, as Shakespeare put it, from my mother's womb, untimely ripped. Of course, the reality might be as bloody as Macbeth, but certainly not as poetic. In my mother's diary, she writes that upon my first cry, the doctor, sweating profusely and out of breath, said, Jesus Christ, that's the worst caesarean I've ever had to do. Is it alive? Ripped indeed, Mr Shakespeare. I've always found caesareans a bit much, and I think my mother did too, evidenced by her screaming through the entire ordeal. When I went on Channel 8's knockoff of the hit BBC show Who Do You Think You Are? the somewhat more forthright titled Who Are You Looking At? I found that the only pain medication my mother received during my birth then was intravenous scalpel and leftover mustard gas from the war. "'There's no wonder I looked jaundiced. "'The yellow of the mustard stained the skin. (laughs) "'Not to mention burned it.' It was a different time. Now, I know all the scientists and doctors and medical journals suggest a caesarean is often necessary for the life of the mother and child, but I think that if they're just given a little more time, perhaps even another month or so, to cook up those little babies, they'll walk out themselves. I really believe that. I, I really do. Oh, but I'm not like one of these, you know, anti-vaxxers, anti-medical. Don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, it's just that I think I know more than the experts a lot of the time and that my resolve is worth more than their myriad of degrees and doctorates. They're just pieces of paper, guys. We can all print out certificates from Google Images. Just look at all of Sean's primary school swimming certificates and my degree in veterinary science. So, yes, it's my birthday, and uh, celebrate, I will. Uh, After this recording, Sean and I are to pop to Hampstead Heath, where we'll sit on a bench with ham sandwiches, half a magnum of champagne, and watch the world go by. Uh, That and limp dog walkers popping in and out of the bushels. God bless them. <laughs> if indeed it were my 54th and not my 84th birthday, I'd be joining them. But uh, alas, these days, with my hips as they are, a bush cannot give the requisite support. And so I must go without the requisite relief. There we go. There we go. That's uh, <laughs> that's age for you. Uh, I get a lot of happiness watching Sean join them, though. He's six years my junior, so one mustn't deny him the odd amorous assertion. I find my GoPro Zoom function gets a lot of us anyway, and uh, from some distance, it, it must be said. I mean, if you're really clever, you'll hide it in the button of your coat, so nobody is, you know, the wiser. especially important if the uh, police accost you and suggest complaints have been made. As I say to them, is there a crime against having a ham sandwich on a bench with some binoculars in a long coat? No, there isn't. So walk on, officer. Meantime, of course, the button camera is getting every outdoor excursion you might like to imagine, and the plods are none the wiser. Modern technology. A wonder. Post-birthday lunch, and bonk in Sean's case, we'll pop home, and uh, whilst Sean hoses himself down and uploads the GoPro material, I'll tend to the menagerie, feeding the pets and sorting through my presents and cards. Oh, and what to spread uh, it is this year. Uh, A personalised pen from the set of The Devil Wears Prada from Anne Hathaway. Flowers from Dame Julia Walters. She always does, God bless her. And four dozen hens from Gordon Ramsay. Uh, I must think about where they're going to go, actually. I can't stay in the second bedroom. And my personal favourite, a weekend away in Bogner Regis from Sir Richard Branson. With a three-course meal included. Oh, he might be tighter than a condom and a beach ball, is dick, but you got to love a weekend in the regis. Incidentally, and finally, before we get going, I would ask any listeners who are thinking of sending a gift, or perhaps have sent a gift, but it's been lost by some stupid postman, or, or they're listening to this, and they're thinking they're a bad listener for not sending a gift, and that they should send a gift as quickly as possible. To you all, I say, hold on, hold back. Hold tight, take that good, and guilt, and your money, and give it to a charity. Make a pledge in my name, because I believe, I really do, that the children are the future. Treat them well, and let them lead the way. Show them the beauty, in the world that they desire, and they do desire. Just pay it forward, please, for the children. Of course, if you absolutely insist on sending a gift, then the details are in the drop-down description under the podcast. Do send chocolates and or M&S vouchers. They have a dine-in for two, deal, And honestly, it's the absolute Queen's jubblies. We love it, don't we, Sean? Yeah, we would absolutely love it. The rosé. Ugh. Oh. Anyway. On with the show! Like many, I never fully appreciated design until the hit 1990s BBC show Changing Rooms was in its full swing. For those in the dark on this, seriously, where have you been? The former 30 minute prime time must see is essentially a makeover narrative and sees two poor households allow a bunch of inappropriate designers into their living rooms to throw away their old sofa and replace it with a rock pool and mirror the size of a Land Rover. Though widely accepted as a reality show, the expressions on the genuinely devastated tenants' faces cemented the programme as one of the greatest comedy series of all time, topping a 2000 poll which included Dad's Army, Faulty Towers and Roots. The deafening cries of a family who can't afford to have the work reversed, the mother shouting live on television, I hate it, you've ruined everything, John, it's all black, why is it all black? Well... They still make me chuckle at the dead of night. But what I take from it mostly is the impact that design has had. Not the lasting psychological damage. Simply that wow factor. That wow. I can't believe how awful that is. Wow. Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen, the long-locked bringer of darkness, famous on the show for restyling everything the same as a 50-year-old man's bachelor pad, told me that design really is the last surviving art form in the Western world. I bumped into him at a mutual enemy's funeral not long ago, as well as laughing along in the back row of the crayon. We also discussed this episode and designer's impact. He told me that whilst Changing Rooms had been a game-changer in people's perception of design, actual designing had gone back much further. I was perplexed, surprised, and even physically sick to find out that places like the Taj Mahal and Tower Bridge had been designed. The mind boggles. He called these designers architects, and before it all got too complicated, I cut him off and steered him and the conversation to the theatre. Well, after asking about Carol Smiley, obviously. Was she really that smiley? I had to know. He said, he said yes, she was. I said, no, but really? Is she really that smiley? He said, yes, she's lovely. No, but come on, Lawrence. Really? Is she really that smiley? I, 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 and he said, yes, yes, she was. I said, well, come on. C- C- Carol Smiley, though? He said, yes, Holworth, she is smiley. I said, but as in overly smiley? He said, well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, is she smiling when she shouldn't be? He said, well, what? I said, well, like here, like at a funeral. Well, he said, I never went to a funeral with her. I said, but if you just imagine it now, if you were at a funeral with her, would she be the sort of person who would continue smiling because she is herself very smiley? He said, well, no, she probably wasn't. And I said, oh, oh, so she isn't always smiley then, is she? Carol's smiley. I knew it. What a moody bitch. In terms of theatrical design, I'm going to be looking in three key areas. Set, costume, and Properties, or props, for those too lazy to speak an extra two syllables or write an extra five letters. I'll be leaving Lighting Design and Sound Design out. Mainly because I really think the less said about the crew the better, but also because Sean and I got bored after looking at these three, and when faced with more Wikipedia or red wine, woohoo, we opted for the Merlot, I'm afraid. It is a 78, I mean, come on. Goodness, there's no competition. It's delicious. So let us start by defining what we mean by a set. Costumes and properties slash props. I find the internet definitions a little flowery, so I've injected them with a few home truths to both help the layman understand what the theatre is all about, but also to take a few people down a peg. You know who you are. Set. Set is furniture. Don't let any set designer tell you anything different. They might upholster an armchair and shift it 45 degrees because of the, quote, sight lines, unquote, whatever the hell that is, but absolute gibberish. But essentially, the sort of work you'll see a set designer do is not dissimilar to the work the annoying salesman does when you go into your local DFS or sophology to look for your new lounge chair. They might piss about thumbing through some fabrics, ask your opinion like they care, and do a lot of trying things, but essentially they're just glorified removal men without the van, the big bellies, and incessant bad breath. Though they will often break things and then pretend it was either already broken or that somebody else broke it, like the actor or the stage manager. They're gutless, really. Costrum. Costrums are clothes. And don't let any costume designer tell you anything different. They might pin a bow on a jodhpur or tie a corsage on a pantaloon, but be under no illusion. A costume designer is the glorified theatrical equivalent of the person in Primark who asks you how many items you have before they shove you into one of those cubicles and pull the curtain across, occasionally reaching to collect the items you don't want or to get a quick grope of your penis. They might have you endlessly changing clothes because they consider the lighting doesn't work or it doesn't fit you, but it's mostly for show. Some of the best costume designers I know are simultaneously great actors for this reason. Hattie Bingham, who has won seven Oscars for her work on costume design, told me that the majority are paid by the hour, so the constant insistence on trying different outfits is simply to run up the hours. And at £8.70 pence an hour... Who can blame them? Personally, I wouldn't get out of bed for four guineas these days, but good luck to them, good luck to them. Props. Properties are things. Don't let any props designer tell you anything different. They might spend hours painting the handle of a knife or fashioning a pig's head out of papier-mâché, handcrafting the look until it's scarily realistic and is mentioned in the reviews for its excellence, but they really are not much more than a primary school art teacher who is a bit too concerned with giving the children a well-rounded education and not enough concerned with teaching the little fuckers how to read and write. In other words, the right education. Property designers know as well as I do that a knife is a knife. So to spend endless hours shining the blade, blunting it, it's pointless, and hand-painting the handle when nobody in the audience is going to notice otherwise is just a waste of good time, and frankly, it's psychotic. So that's set, costume, and props. Now, you might think I'm being flippant, but you'd be wrong. No, flippancy would suggest I think we don't need them. Of course we need them. I don't want to be on stage with my treasures out. At 84, the dissension of my scrotum would be cause for concern enough, let alone the fact it can get quite chilly in those theatres, and I will get the goose flesh. No, we must have Carthstrom, we must have and we must have properties, and we must have those people who create those things. They are extremely, extremely important. That is, all designers, except for Jefferson Fritz Jingle, who if he were a bike, I'd smash to pieces and throw in the canal, leaving him to share the remainder of his life with a few ducks and the local serial killer's weekend's work. But more on him later. You're listening to Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. Next up, we'll be looking at some of my favourite designs, including me, Auntie Joan's new curtains. They're crimson and pleated. She's delighted with them, and so am I. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Dunelm. A wonderful store. We'll also be discussing the do's and don'ts of realising theatrical design, like don't use spikes on chairs, use cushions, or don't use an egg to make cutlery, uh, don't make them at all. in fact, it's a waste of time, just just buy them, order them on, on Amazon, if you have Prime, they'll be here the next day, it's a great service. they don't pay tax, but... But uh, it's still a great service, and, and that's good enough for me. Just, just just order them, relax, and then have a cup of tea, I would say. Anyway, more, more on that later. Uh, for now, uh, a word from this week's sponsors.
0: Welcome to the world of Noel Coward. Take yourself back 1,000 years with this 65 gold disc set of Noel Coward's greatest hits. Hear all your favorite roaring hits from days gone by, spoken by the man himself over the melodies. It's got all your favorites on it, like, Me mother was a woman and me father was a man. Kiss me you naughty boy but not in front of the policeman. And hoo-hoo ray for the KKK. And who can forget Coward's unforgettable ballads like Miss Soldier's going off to war and look how sad I am. The Chinaman loves his dog. And silly Billy Shakespeare. You can have this incredible collection of melodic memories for just 2095. Yes, that's 2095. That's $2,095. So whip out that credit card, and you'll be listening to That Coward's Greatest Hits before you know it. Hits like, Don't Put Your Daughter on His Lap, Mrs. Worthington, and The Soviet Machine. Here it comes. Aha, aha, aha. Buy now, buy now, buy now, buy now. The American Society for the Appreciation of the Work of Noel Coward proudly sponsors Talking Theater, the only podcast
1: on earth about the theater. David Sachet, the bald Belgian actor famous for his television portrayal as Agatha Christie's sleuth creation, Miss Marple, told me that without Karststrom, his BAFTA-winning performance would have been nothing. He always felt he knew Marple, but it wasn't till he slipped into the granny knickers, popped on his flowery dress, and had his catheter and bag put in, that he really felt the presence of the old busybody. Add a pair of plain pumps a sun hat, and a handbag, and he was practically possessed. In fact, on several occasions, it is said Sir Shea had to be slapped out of character at the end of the day's shooting, as instead of getting out of Karthstrom and going home, he'd start investigating anything he could misconstrue as a crime, like on one occasion when he questioned the entire crew about a single turd left unflushed in the toilet. Aside from this anecdote confirming Suchet's method, that method being insanity, it also demonstrates how important Karthstrom can be. In looking back through my anals to try and find what I consider the best example of Karthstrom design, I come back time and time again to the same thing. A Godzilla. It simply cannot be beaten. The large Japanese reptilian alien is nothing but a work of genius, and I was fortunate enough to visit an exhibition last year where the head was displayed in a large glass case. The caption on the side said that the costume was not only a formidable design, but also a feat of engineering. Apparently, the entire costume could be controlled by one actor from the inside, but I was fascinated to read that whilst it was impressive, In order to work it from the inside, the actor doing so risked his life every time he did it because of the sheer amount of electrics and emissions that were created from its uh, manoeuvring and its uh, roaring. The plaque said that on the final day of the shoot, they seemed to have dodged every safety bullet, but as they called cut and asked Francis Dorman, the short actor who played the part, to come out, they received no answer. He had indeed perished. The only comfort came during his memorial service when his wife and four young children stood up one by one and insisted he died the way he wanted to, inside the belly of a mechanical dragon with 15,000 volts of electricity coursing through his veins. Custom design. Wow. You see, it's dedication like that that really counts. I mean, you wouldn't get that sort of dedication from, let's say, oh, I don't know... The little worm that is Jefferson Fritz Jingle. No, 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 no. He'll have never set foot in Godzilla for the sake of the film, even if it were his own putrid design. He's a dreadful bastard. But uh, more on him later. Pieter said that if a man walks across an empty space and another man is watching, then that is all that is required for a piece of theatre to take place. If we assume then that a set designer puts a piece of furniture in the way of that man, then we can assume that set designers are in many ways the enemy of the theatre. Now look, yes, I know, I've said design is important, and that's true. I just think that they could pull back a touch, and I think Brooke is onto something. Especially the set designers. Of course it helps to know that we're on a boat if one is doing Titanic, the musicals say, but do we really need it rammed down our throats? Perhaps just the occasional prop seagull flown in, one dinghy downstage left, and maybe a few ominous cubes of ice far upstage and on the right would be more than adequate and wouldn't distract from what is truly the most important thing in the theatre. That's right, it's not the story, it's the actor. First and foremost, the actor. Personally, I think a good set design process should be 90% drawing, 5% model box, 3% changing it entirely, and 2% agreeing that there should be as little set as possible and to just write a sentence in the programme about where the play is set. I think that will do it. In terms of the best set design I've ever come across, well, to that I must refer to a one Sir Michael Crawford who told me at Shirley Bass's 100th birthday that he was once in a show where the set design first began as simply a bare stage because the production team wanted it as simple as possible. As the cast rehearsed, they began to find the stage cumbersome though, like it was getting in the way, so the set designer had it removed. The actors, of course, then had to be suspended in the air in order to act In the space, as with no stage, there was of course no floor. Then, one week out of the show, the cast had a crisis meeting as they felt that the back wall was pulling focus. Another meeting with the set designer led to the back wall being removed, which everyone felt immediately good about. And the show opened in earnest with no back wall and no stage slash floor. Now, the first preview was a mixed bag, with audiences completely perplexed at what they were seeing. Another crisis meeting was called and it was agreed the ceiling should also be removed and being that the ceiling is how the actors were flown in, the actors would also have to be relocated to another room. Their voices played on large speakers which were located in the auditorium. The preview week continued, everyone seemed to be happy, and that was, of course, until the critics and the reviewers came in. I mean, they absolutely adored it, they loved it, but they didn't get it. Of course, they said that the ingenuity of it was in making the auditorium the set. And of course, this would never do. So the production team called another crisis meeting to have the auditorium taken out, including all the rooms in the theatre and the whole theatre itself. Within five weeks, the set design had gone from simply a bare stage to a cassette tape in a field with the audio of the play on it. Now that's what I call a set design. Wow. Just wow. Jefferson Fitzjingle couldn't design something like that. Jefferson Fitzjingle couldn't design his own face. He's such a stupid bastard. Anyway, more on him. well, now. Jefferson Fitzjingle is by all accounts the most hopeless, feckless, cantankerous props designer I've ever known or had the misfortune to work with, and that's including Janet Holloway, who could only be hired on shows that didn't involve food, because otherwise she'd eat all the edible props. I first worked with Jingle in 1981 on a production of Martha's Buns, a light operetta about a baker who finds a lost world inside her oven, gets lost in it, and has to bake her way out. Its seven acts are pretty impenetrable stuff. If the long metaphorical ballets aren't hard enough to follow, then the audience must reconcile with the fact it's sung entirely in Kazakh. No mean feat. As such, it relies heavily on its design to tell the story. Uh, Tim Burton, in his theatrical directing debut, phoned me to offer me the part of Count Panacotta and told me of the production team of which Jingle was one. Uh, Jingle's a marvel, Tim said, but I recall just grunting and going, Oh, is he? Oh, well, good for him. I don't know. I've never enjoyed hearing people are any good. It doesn't excite me, it, it bores me, and it-, it makes me feel less of the person complimenting, because I'm forced to ask myself why they're complimenting another person and not taking the time to, to compliment me, because I am good, truly good. Marvelous, And several papers industry professionals and former lovers will attest to that. I mean, it's not arrogance. It's just fucking true. I'm tremendous. And besides that, Jingle didn't need Burton's sycophantic ramblings. His credentials spoke for themselves. Born in Brighton, a city of Bohemian artistry and the fifths, he went on to study for three years at the SBT, or School of the Bloody Talented, in Epsom, Surrey, where he majored in theatrical design and procrastination. On graduating with what we call in the business a ballerina's modesty, a tutu, Jingle left and joined the military in the Design Corps, where he designed everything from exterior casings of warheads to the kitten heels of lady officers to the toxic signs plastered on the side of nuclear waste barrels. To this day, and to his credit, he is the only designer I know who can draw a skull and crossbones with great scientific detail in under 20 seconds. And to that, I tip my hat. In 1981, though, Tim Burton, who was his next-door neighbour, noticed his quirky garden furniture, which was made from old Soviet war machines, and spotting a fellow madman – Burton really is a madman, I mean completely and absolutely mental – asked him to make a career change to the theatre for Martha's Buns. Jingle wasn't certified insane yet, uh, but looking back he was drinking his urine by this time and also carried around a. a there was a small wooden duck – that he called Gerald, which he often claimed was the third Duke of Glamorgan and owned half of Guernsey. Nevertheless, Burton hired him, and as we began rehearsals, Jingle began his work on the props of the show, which were his main occupation and his area of expertise. Now, up until opening night, I have nothing but good things to say about the man, mainly because our paths never crossed, but his behaviour on opening night is to some of the worst I have ever encountered from a human being. I only specify that because I was once treated pretty appallingly by a porpoise when I was doing Les Mis at the Barbican. They had porpoises in it back then. Uh, I'd given him two guineas to get me a Twix in the rehearsal break and when he returned, he had the Twix, but he claimed he'd dropped and lost my change. Um, He hadn't. He'd, he'd pocketed it. And we all knew. Like I say, uh, um, appalling, really appalling behaviour. From a porpoise as well, I mean. Anyway, in Martha's Buns, blissfully, my part wasn't very prop-heavy. I must admit it, Patrick Stewart, now a knight of the realm, who multi-rolled as a donut, a cream bun and a brownie, was constantly at the props table, for example, picking up various prop fillings to fill the holes in his various costumes. It was ketchup mixed with corn flour to double as the red jam oozing out of his jammy d head, shaving foam which he had spread across his back, he played the cream bun on all fours, and uh, mud and sludge which uh, he would have to cover himself head to toe in to play the creamy, fudgy, lovely brownie. Meanwhile, Sheila Hancock, who played Martha the Bakeress, had a wooden spoon coming out of every orifice for the entire show. Uh, something she seemed to relish, as I recall. So, look, others had a prop-heavier uh, show. It's true, I'll admit it. Nevertheless, I was due to swing by the props table mid-act three to pick up my one and only prop, a spatula for my number, kiss, kiss, kush, kira, kiss, kiss, a ten-minute aria that I was to give atop a profiterole mountain. It was, by all accounts, the show-stopping moment. Quite literally, with no hydraulics in Kazakhstan and the ages, the huge structure took 15 minutes to wheel onto the stage. To cover it, an elaborate puppet show was choreographed, the start of which was always my cue to leave my dressing room, retrieve my one prop of the show, get into the flight harness and set myself ready in the wings. So, anyway, there I am, I'm walking up the stairs on opening night, and who was at the props table but Jingle himself? At his props table, as he normally is, sourcing through, making sure everyone is getting their props. Great. Wonderful. Brilliant. Good so far. So I says, Jingle, dear, pass me Miss spatula. I'm about to go on for kiz kiz kush, get a kush. And without skipping a beat, he says, It's cut, Burton says. Go on without it. I said, I beg your pardon? He says, Burton says you never use it and it's pointless. I said... You'll have to run that by me again, Jingle. I thought you just told me my prop had been cut without my person being consulted. Jingle, sensing I was starting to steam at the ears, reached for his top pocket for the wooden duck, at which point I interrupted his move and said, I don't think we require the Duke for this. Now I'll ask you again. Where is my spatula, you bastard?' Jingle abandoned his reach for the Guernsey Duke and instead comes towards me with his paint-stained hands and says he's very sorry and that it really wasn't his decision, but that he agrees with Burton that the spatula never felt quite right and that I was a good actor and I should be the centre of attention. And with that, I kicked him in the shin. I told him if he ever fucked with me again like this, I'd fucking end his career in a second. You don't take a man's spatula before he goes on to give an aria. You don't fuck with a man like that. If you want to fuck with me, you better get yourself a good fucking prop for that and meet me out the back, because I carry a fucking prop with me morning, noon and fucking night, mate. And it's not fucking blunted either. I'm happy to go toe-to-toe with you, and I'm not talking stage combat neither. I'm talking wrestling like bears. Bears that animals are not the type you get in Soho on a Monday night. If you want to do that, then you come find me later. Otherwise, you better stay out of my fucking face, Jingle. Well, Jingle was shaking, and he fled the theatre, and he was never, ever seen again. Like I say, completely mad. To act on a director's instruction in the theatre is an abomination at the best of times. Most directors would agree with me, and to cut a prop without telling an actor is shameful. Now, I suppose you'll ask why I needed the spatula so much. Well, the truth is I didn't, but it's the principle. Now, I know Sheila Hancock wrote in her autobiography some years later that the real reason I got so irate is because I hadn't bothered to learn any of the Kazakh and so had written all the phonetic lines onto the back of the spatula and relied on it to get through the number and that Burton had repeatedly told me to cut the spatula in every rehearsal because it made no sense and was ruining the show. But that is just more bollocks. "'Hancock always did talk absolute shite, "'and it's a shame she has to sell her toilet-top book "'through such fanciful lies.'" I'm talking mainly about her specific retelling of that episode, though her cavalier use of airbrushing on her photos in the centre pages leaves much to be desired as well. "'No, I won't take any responsibility "'for Jingle's dreadful behaviour, "'nor his suicide later that day.'" "'Lowly props to Zan's take note.'" If you fuck with my props, or any actors for that matter, don't be surprised if they berate you to the point that you feel so rotten afterwards you feel you've ruined your chance at this life and must take your chances on another. Jefferson Fitzjingle, everyone. Take a fucking bow. And so to correspondence. This week... Pringle Breslow, 84, from Glasgow, writes in with a very curious question indeed. Hello, Pringle. He writes, "'Holworth, I hope you're well. "'You have to excuse my not using your title, "'but as a lifelong Scottish Republican, I find the crown an abomination "'and refuse to acknowledge what I view as the continued subjugation "'of a nation of people who deserve the right to be free. "'I'm serious, Holworth. "'The French had it right.' Drag them out of Buckingham Palace and behead every last one of them, and the corgis too. They're complicit. They can't wash their paws of this. I wanted to write because we share the same birthday, and not just the date, but the year as well. And so from one year old to another, I say, happy birthday. In fact... I looked your history up, and found out that we were born in the same hospital, across beds from each other, and our parents also came from the same area. Isn't it funny that you grew up to be a famous knight of the realm, though obviously I don't consider you that, with a wife, a boyfriend, and children, a lovely house and money in the bank? Whereas I grew up in abject poverty, with an alcoholic father, and a mother who spent as much time begging for food as she did on the game i suppose my question is this looking at how close we were in location and are in age and how different our lives have turned out you happy and highly decorated me poor and without prospects or hope i'd just like to ask why just why pringle Oh, Pringle, oh, Pringle, 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 Pringle. Oh, Pringle-bred's love from a ago When you pop, you really don't stop, do you? <laughs> Can I start by saying I couldn't disagree with you more about the monarchy? "'Yes, look, the winds are sort of little inbred "'and are probably responsible for the death of the people's princess. "'but they bring a lot of money in, and that's what counts Pringle, OK? "'Money, money, 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 mm, lovely. <laughs> "'You wouldn't know, because you've never had it. "'But money is a lovely thing, and it really is the key to happiness. "'Besides which, the Netflix show The Crown, which was inspired by the royals, "'has got my friend Olivia Colman back to proper acting "'rather than all that blubbing and crying she got into the habit of doing for the last decade.' I phoned her after her first series to congratulate her, and she was desperate to know how she was doing. I said to her, yes, it's a caricature, yes, the performance is one-dimensional, but it's a step in the right direction. But I did also say to her, Olivia, the one thing you must do more as Lizzie is swear. Like Julie Andrews, the Queen swears with the best of them. Her pet name for Philip, for instance, is Cunt. Well, it has been for the past few years, but overall, as as I say, Olivia, it is a step in the right direction. That, Pringle, you cannot deny. Now, on to your central question. Unfortunately, I don't have any information or insight into the sociology of our upbringings and why they differ, so And indeed, when I approached a sociologist on your behalf, he told me to please get out and that if I wanted to talk, I should knock at the door and not climb through his back bathroom window and in business hours and not at 3am. It's this medication. I'll kill that, Dr. Grimwig. However, you are in some luck. I was surfing the dark web, and I found a scientific theory that said we were genetically predisposed to overachieving and underachieving. In other words, the physical stock you are from, your genes, mean that you were always destined to be a loser with nothing to show for yourself. It's what they call on the website an oxygen waster, and they suggest that even if you were gifted opportunities and money you'd make a mess of it and still end your days without love friends or hard cash you're the sort of person who if they got a windfall would spend it on the races and cigarettes instead of investing it or paying off somebody in power in order to gain more power for yourself so whilst this might seem a little harsh you can take some solace in the knowledge that from birth this difficult road was chosen for you and the cause belongs solely to you Indeed, there's literally nothing you could do about it. In many ways, you're like the Queen. (laughs) Isn't that a cruel irony for a man who hates her so? I do hope that helps. Pringle Breslow, 84, from Glasgow. To you I say, happy birthday. Good day. Well, that's all we have time for today. Join me next time, and we'll be going back into my own personal archive for the 10th episode special, and I'll be sharing the audio recording of myself on the famous actor's interview show Deep Inside an Actor with James Lipton's protégé, Billy Philpot. In the episode from 1984, I discuss my early life... What gave me the bug? That's the theatre, not HIV. It was the 80s, after all. And why I love my wife so much. It was a different time. You've been listening to Sorkin's Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. And so, until next time, to you, I say, goodbye.